a big thing that we can do that's also really simple is just be careful in the types of questions that we ask. So instead of asking someone, why are you against Bitcoin? Even that question is kind of a loaded question it can, and it can allow someone to just dive into all of their justifications that are really rote and connected to their identity, for example. But if we ask someone how they've come to that conclusion, how do they know this to be true? That forces them to take a step back and evaluate the, the mechanism to their beliefs and gives a, a detailed process of connecting logical propositions to each other. So, and there's been some studies looking at this too, that just asking how someone knows something versus why can make a really big difference in how objective they are in their response. So trying to ask how instead of why, trying to avoid uh, binary questions, you know, do you support this, yes or no? And just really broadening the conversation. So revising our conversation to be as broad, as thoughtful, and as curious as possible. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Matthew Fasciani, who has a PhD in sociology and is currently a postdoctoral researcher at Vanderbilt University, where his research interests include LGBTQ health, social networks, political polarization, and misinformation. His forthcoming book, Misguided, where misinformation starts, how it spreads, and what to do about it, will be published later this year. In this episode, we discuss how misinformation and disinformation are defined, are there individuals or demographics that are more susceptible to misinformation, and most importantly, what we can do about it. Matthew provides keen insight into these topics as well as how they relate to Bitcoin and the crypto ecosystem at large. This is certainly an episode we can all learn from, especially as we begin to promote Bitcoin to a broader audience. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode with Matthew Fasciani. All right, Matthew Fasciani, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's get right into it. Your area of focus, your area of study is misinformation. So how do you define what misinformation is? Yeah, so misinformation, broadly speaking, is just anything that's false or misleading, regardless of intent. So that differs from disinformation that focuses more on intent and the intention that people are using false information to mislead other people. So it does not require intention. That's interesting. And in turn, would how would you differentiate then disinformation and, and say propaganda or outright lying? Yeah, so they're all kind of related to each other. So this is where it gets tricky. And a lot of times, a lot of scholars will use misinformation as kind of like the broad umbrella term and then try to specify uh, disinformation versus propaganda versus other elements of, broadly speaking, misinformation. Uh, propaganda is more connected to disinformation because there's often this intent to try to persuade someone to believe something. And you know, propaganda has been around for a long time. So it's often politically motivated. It doesn't have to be. But there's certainly this element of intentionally trying to mislead someone to some sort of 
goal, some sort of political goal or some sort of mission that they have that is based on that information that they're spreading. How does one actually tease out the intentionality component of it? Uh, to me, it would seem that it's hard to separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that intention is malicious or not, I think is, is is obviously debatable. But if it's if it's whether it's advertising a politician, a company, or otherwise, there's always some type of intentionality towards uh, information that is, that is put out there. Um, how do you how do you tease that out with regard to misinformation? Then, yeah, that's a good question. So it is hard. It absolutely is hard to to know, and sometimes you can't know for sure. So that's the short answer. Is sometimes we just don't know. Uh, other times, if it's from a specific political campaign, or we have seen someone who has been caught in a lie that they're trying to uh, hide. Um, so there's certain ways that you can people might reveal themselves that they're trying to intentionally mislead someone if you have other information that that verifies it. But you're right, it's often hard to know people's intent. And that's why I focus more on misinformation more broadly, just information that is false based on the available evidence at the time. And then we can try to tease out disinformation as well later on. There's also, if if we know where the source of the information is coming from, for example, if it's from uh, a series of bots that someone created, then it seems like they're trying to manipulate something. There's some intention there if you're making a fake account that's spreading a message. And that's more likely to be disinformation if it's from a bot account that's premeditated and already has this programmed uh, process to try to spread this particular information out there. So in a way, at a top level uh, examination, intention doesn't necessarily matter for sake of what you're studying. Yeah, at least for how I approach it, uh, I look at just the impact of bad information out there. And then we can kind of dive into the more macro structural level forces of where it's coming from and what types of people uh, are spreading it and what their goals are. But as far as the susceptibility to bad information, uh, for me, I just kind of approach it as a general misinformation uh, how we're <laughs> how we're susceptible to it and what we can do about it. So, uh, one of the questions that I'd asked you, I think, in the spaces uh, not too long ago is. Obviously, there's misinformation is is a hot topic right now. Mm-hmm. Um, is there really more misinformation out there, or is it simply a byproduct of more information at our fingertips? So I think it's the latter. There's always been misinformation out there. So as long as we had stories to anything written down, the printing press, um, and to newspapers, to radio, there's always been people spreading misinformation and disinformation. There's always been the intent to mislead as well. But now information is so incredibly accessible and it can spread so quickly that it often can feel like there's more misinformation, especially because in some instances, misinformation does spread more quickly. So we know that online with social media in particular, misinformation and sensationalized information tends to spread quicker and go viral more often. So this does seem like there's more misinformation out there now, even though there's always been misinformation in our world. Is there anything to learn from the historical context of misinformation? Because as you said, this dates back to early days as a society. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to glean or learn from those historical uh, examples over time as it relates to what you're studying now and how we relate to it? I guess for me, 
I think what I take away from it is that it's a very human problem, that there's always been misinformation. People have always fallen for it. There's always been people trying to spread it. So it's trying to really dive into the psychology of why we're susceptible to misinformation in the first place. And I think that's, that's how I try to approach it. So even though with social media and our digital world, information obviously spreads much more quickly, much more efficiently, but the underlying issue of why people hold these beliefs has been pretty much the same for as long as humans have been around. Our psychology hasn't changed that much. Uh, you know, we haven't had much time to really evolve biologically and change all that much since written words have been found. So it's not like our brains are fundamentally different than they were, uh, even though our environment is much different now. Well, let's get into that. Why are we more susceptible to it? Yeah, so I approach it from the position of identity. And this idea that whenever we hold an identity that's important to us, we're motivated to maintain consistency between the values of that identity and the information we see in the world. So if we come across information that is wrong or misleading, but it confirms our identity, we're motivated to still believe that information in order to protect our identity that's, that's meaningful to us. That's in contrast to what you've described as the deficit model. Can you tell us what that is and how, uh, what you've just described with regard to uh, affirmation of one's identity is different? Yeah, so the deficit model really focuses on this lack of education that can explain a lot of misinformation and susceptibility to misinformation. And there is some truth to that. There is some research showing a link between uh, a deficit in education and a deficit in media literacy and finding this correlation between susceptibility of misinformation and and spreading misinformation. So there's some research that does show this link. However, I think, and I would argue, and there's a lot of research to support that identity and ideology explain far more of the variants that we see out in the world. So by far, people are gonna be much more likely to share and believe misinformation that aligns with their identity compared to um, other factors. And we even see that people that are highly educated can still fall for misinformation, of course, and identity will override uh, people's information uh, processing ability. Even if they have good media or literacy, even if they're highly educated, people are very good at then picking and choosing what types of misinformation or what types of information they pay attention to, even if it is misinformation. So is there research out there to tell us who's more susceptible to misinformation, whether there's that's demographics or education level, socioeconomic positions? Yeah, so there's definitely research on a few main variables. Uh, one big demographic is age. So people who are older tend to share and believe more misinformation. And this also relates to a lack of uh, computer literacy, digital literacy, when we think about the older generations that are just not as familiar with how information spreads and checking their sources, for example. So age is definitely a big one. uh, And that's uh, controlling for a lot of other factors. Older people tend to share more misinformation. The other really big one is, again, identity. So the most ideologically extreme people are the most likely to share misinformation. And they account for a huge amount of uh, misinformation 
uh, there's a few studies that show just how disproportionate it is. Like, for example, there's only about 6% of uh, Twitter users that are the most politically extreme. And they account for like the vast majority of political information on Twitter. So we see that the most extreme people account for so much in our ecosystem, especially the online ecosystem. Um, so absolutely identity and ideology are going to account for predicting how likely someone is to spread misinformation. So backing up a moment, uh, mm -hmm. this may seem like an obvious question with a, an obvious answer, but what do you identify as the real problems with misinformation? So you mean like real world impacts, that kind of stuff? Right. Why should we care about it? Yeah. So it's a good question. Uh, I think there's a few different answers. One that uh, I think is, you know, there's a few ones that, that speak to me. One is health misinformation. That's the big one that we've seen uh, more recently with COVID. But throughout history, there's always been misinformation about magical cures, for example, for different uh, illnesses that people had and trying to do these, trying to spread these false treatments for monetary gain. Uh, this whole, you know, the whole idea of pseudoscience, homeopathy, it all falls in this broad category of misinformation um, and sometimes disinformation too. If people have an intent to try to knowingly mislead people to, to get their money. So thinking about the health misinformation part of it, that's been uh, something that, you know, again, long before COVID, we've seen people trying to mislead others and people falsely believing in certain treatments and cures that end up being harmful to them or at least not helpful compared to evidence-based medicine if they would have went that route instead. Uh, another big part is violence too. Oftentimes by seeing all this misinformation out there, we've seen many historical examples of it being used to fuel violence and anger. And people who don't like a particular group can spread lies about that group and try to rile people up in order to attack them. And this links often with the whole idea of polarization, extremism, and misinformation. I think a lot of those are all very interconnected. So when you have people that are really extreme, really polarized, they're more likely to fall for misinformation because they have this really strong identity that's connected to it. So we just talked about identities and how that biases us. If we live in a very polarized climate, then the people who have these polarized identities are going to be even more susceptible to misinformation and wanting to attack their outgroup, whatever it may be. Um, and then finally, another way to break it down is even the economic issues. So there's been lots of examples of fake news being spread, and then the stock market will jump up or down depending on the news. And it, it shows just how powerful misinformation can be and how fragile uh, some of our markets can be from responding to these types of news articles. I know uh, a crypto example was this with um, with Litecoin. I don't know if you remember seeing this, but Litecoin was rumored to be accepted by Walmart and uh, and be you know much more accessible and promoted. But it was completely fake news, even though I think it was even retweeted by the verified Litecoin account. And Litecoin shot up like thirty percent in like thirty minutes. Mm -hmm. So. You know, it makes you think about all the nefarious purposes that people can <laughs> try to do if they want to manipulate the markets. So trying to be uh, aware of different, you know, checking our sources and making sure that 
everything's been verified is, is really important too. So uh, we don't um, fall victim to the, the financial aspects of, of misinformation. So financial misinformation, violence, and health misinformation are three of the, the biggest categories I can think of. And then even more broad than that is just sort of thinking about how misinformation plays a role in eroding some of the our democracy in a lot of ways. So whenever we have, uh, you know, you know, violence or polarization, if we have misinformation that's making so many groups of people really angry, then it's harder to function as society. And just even more broadly, when there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there, we then lose our sense of trust in other people and what we see online. And when we stop trusting each other, that's really when we fall victim to some really horrible things. So those are some of the kind of the big picture aspects of this information that can really negatively impact our society. And, you know, a lot of it builds from the smaller examples of misinformation that we see every day. Well, let's touch on trust a little bit more with regard to the example of health that you brought up as your first reason for being concerned about misinformation. I think that is a very telling example. And if you look at the arc of uh, modern medicine as it relates to patent medicines, which you uh, brought up, those obviously flourished at a time when medicines were not efficacious, when Mm -hmm. we were utilizing treatments like bloodletting and mercury and things like that, um, that were of no benefit. Of course, patent medicines were going to flourish because you had no other choice. But then, you know, come turn of the century, 19th century, uh, as the scientific uh, model and examining uh, more biologic causes for uh, disease from a more granular level uh, came into light and more efficacious drugs uh, were developed. That was able to supplant the patent medicine market because now people had alternatives uh, that they could trust. And so that that in turn also built the further trust in the medical community. But since the 50s, that trust in the medical community has been waning. Mm-hmm. So do you see then that the lack of trust as augmenting people's susceptibility to misinformation, uh, in particular with, with, with health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, trust is another huge aspect. I mean, we've seen this in a, a variety of studies that show another key predictor of sharing and believing misinformation is a lack of trust in institutions, scientific institutions, medical institutions. And it gets tricky because some of that trust is, or some of that distrust is warranted sometimes, right? So like there are instances we can think of, of the government not being uh, (laughs) the most honest or forthright about things, or politicians maybe not being the most honest or forthright. So when people have this distrust in some of their political leaders, it can spread to other areas as well. And it's unfortunate to, to see this process take place because ultimately people are going to listen to those who they trust. And that's connected to how important it is or uh, how much emphasis we place on social relationships. So that's really where I focus on a lot of my research is just like thinking about how social relationships help form our identity how social relationships help us navigate our social worlds, and then how we can try to figure out who we trust because we are more likely to believe something if it's coming from someone we trust. Absolutely. So with regard to 
misinformation. Um, one of the things that I, I think I see a lot of retorts on with, in, on Twitter uh, has to do with people just saying, well, that's my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. You, you bring up evidence to say that their opinion is wrong, but it gets dismissed as it's just my opinion, therefore it's okay to say. How do you distinguish misinformation and uninformed opinions? And then ultimately, how do we all tie this into free speech? Yeah, those are some big questions. So for me, I think what differentiates an opinion and information is if if something is able to be tested empirically. So if I say my favorite cereal is cookie crisp, then that's an opinion, right? So that's a subjective taste. And it's not something that can really be tested empirically. I mean, I guess I could line up like a hundred cereal boxes and see which one I like most, but it's just saying what is I personally like best. And that differs from if we're trying to say something uh, that can be tested empirically. So if we say cookie crisp has five grams of sugar per serving, uh, I don't know why I'm sticking on cookie crisp. <laughs> I just remember, I don't even eat the, the really <laughs> cereal at all now, but um, I remember I used to like cookie crisp when I was little. So, <laughs> so anyway, that's an empirical claim. If we say this item has X amount of sugar, then you can go and test that. And it can be misinformation if that's actually not the amount of grams of sugar if we were to test it. So for me, I think opinion versus information really depends on if something can be objectively studied. But it becomes a problem when the media can report on a study and misquote something, Mm -hmm. uh, misrepresent the science in any capacity. There's been a few high-profile cases of, of this where you know scientists in particular with with climate data that gets misconstrued and it becomes incorrect factually incorrect and formal complaints are filed yet they're dismissed because it's an opinion piece right Mm -hmm. how can we if at all counteract that that trend does that just become something more about journalistic integrity or is that uh, something that we can do better from the scientific community what are your thoughts So this gets into freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And there's a few different ways that I try to think about it. So I think it's first important to separate private companies from laws, right? So the, and the government. And I feel like that's often conflated that when a private company moderates its content, people say it's a a freedom of speech issue when really it's a private company making a decision on what they want on their platform. But the broader question is basically how much expression do we want? And do we want content moderation in many contexts of our lives? And I think what gets really tricky is the whole idea of amplification. So it's one thing to think about freedom of speech if everything's neutral and we're all in a vacuum and there really is some sort of marketplace of ideas that's completely fair and neutral and everyone's just in the town square with an equal voice and an equal volume to their voice. But that's not true. It's not really even close to being true because we know that lots of people have different amounts of influence and different amount of resources that can change how much voice they have. 
And then we also know that social media amplifies content if it's more sensationalized or if it's more emotional and it spreads quicker and it's more likely to go viral. So when you think about the digital marketplace of ideas, we know that the ideas don't have equal footing and that different ideas are going to spread simply because they're more emotional or they evoke more outrage. So then it gets to a, a question of how do we want to moderate that and how do we want to consider that? And that's gets really, it gets really hard to, to find the right balance. And I think we're still trying to figure that out. But I always think it's important to mention that, that it's not this very equal, pure marketplace of ideas because of all of the other larger structural factors at play. When you examine how to handle misinformation, do you have particular buckets by which you uh, view that question? Meaning, is there a different way to handle it from a social media standpoint versus private company standpoint versus government standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. And I wish that was often brought up when we talk about misinformation, because I think it's frustrating to see sometimes people conflate all three of these different levels, like the, the, the micro level, like a one-on-one -on -one conversation or the, the meso level of like groups of people interacting. And then the macro level, like these big structural questions. And for each one of those levels, it requires different techniques and strategies to try to correct misinformation appropriately. So I think that's always really important to consider when we're having these discussions about misinformation is what level are we talking about and what's the context to which we're talking about? Let's focus on social media for a moment, since that's obviously where you and I uh, spend a lot of our time. Mm -hmm. uh, you've mentioned previously how identity fits into uh, being more susceptible to misinformation, but it's also a way to counteract it, correct? Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about how that works. Yeah, so you absolutely can counteract misinformation, right? Like fact-checking can work. <laughs> um, people do change their minds. Where it gets tricky is, again, the, these other elements. So, for example, if we think about Twitter, one thing I find frustrating that I see all types of people do is they will retweet misinformation or bad information or something hateful in order to attack it. <laughs> and what's that, what that's doing is really just amplifying that message. So on the one hand, it's good to correct misinformation or call out something that's harmful. However, I think it's important to consider what are the ramifications of us doing so. So for example, if you're, if you're a big account and you're retweeting something from a really small account, basically you just gave this really small account tons of free exposure. You, you gave it this algorithmic boost that the algorithm saying, okay, lots of people are engaging with this. So it's going to show up on more people's news feeds. And it's going to spread a lot more than it would have if you just ignored it. But if you're communicating with someone who maybe is on an equal level of, of followers and that was going to be spread around anyway, maybe it makes sense to try to combat some of the, the falsehoods in their claim because it's already being spread around a lot. People are already talking about it. And you feel like you have something worthwhile to offer that can fact check or counteract some misinformation. So I think those are some considerations that are important too. That's interesting. Uh, two thoughts. One, getting back to what I alluded to earlier with regard to opinions and the mainstream media 
in their opinion pieces and how they may sometimes get things wrong. So one of the scientists uh, that had that occur wrote an editorial in Nature and, and ended a statement by saying, a lie may be able to travel around the world before the truth has its shoes on, but an unchallenged untruth will never stop. But what I hear you saying is that there's an asterisk in there, mm-hmm. meaning specifically with social media, the amplification of a smaller voice can, can be problematic. And this gets back to where you're saying it's it's the off the bell curve, so to speak, of the, the, the fringe voices that do the most harm with regard to misinformation. And you're amplifying that. Is that what you're saying? Yep, absolutely. So in a way, there could be more of a, an 80-20 rule to this, so to speak, if it's okay to, to challenge that untruth if it's almost a, a equal footing, if, if it's Elon Musk calling out somebody uh, else famous, uh, would it be an appropriate mm-hmm. uh, thing to do as opposed to retweeting some lie that I put out there? Is that correct? Yeah, I, that's what I would think. Um, I, I mean, some people might challenge that, that you should always try to fact check something just in case, you know, you change one mind. But for me, again, I'm trying to think of just like the broader issue of like how much bad information are you potentially adding to their our ecosystem? So again, if like someone has 10 followers and they say something really inappropriate or really false, that only would have potentially been seen by 10 people <laughs> and maybe not even that. So by amplifying it, then we're getting that bad information out there to lots of people. So is it worth potentially maybe changing someone's mind versus the consequence of then having more bad information pollute our ecosystem? So I think it's it's worth considering uh, our actions in that, in that part. Yeah, that's interesting. So you may be able to change one person's mind, but it may also may sway you know, a half dozen others the other direction. Right. So one of the things that you've discussed about uh, is Mm self-affirmation, meaning trying to, in essence, meet somebody where they are at uh, in their position, uh, affirming their identity before discussing a particular issue, uh, fact in this case. Can you tell us a little bit more about what uh, self-affirmation and and how we can use it to counteract misinformation? Yeah, so self-affirmation is something that's been used in the psychology literature for a few decades now. And basically, it's this idea of trying to affirm some core value or identity that someone has in order to make them more open to other information that may, it may be challenging to their to another identity. So how I like to think about it is like uh, it's kind of like a hydraulic force of identities in your mind. And we always want to protect ourselves and how we view ourselves and our sense of self. So... If someone goes and attacks an important identity of us, then that's going to make us feel bad and we're going to shut down and we're not going to be likely to listen to them. But if someone boosts an important identity that we have first and gives us a little bit more resources than we normally might have, then we're better able to process being challenged by another identity that's being attacked. So it's kind of like it equals out by, by boosting one identity and giving us a little bit more of an ego boost, we're able to handle another part of our identity being threatened. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You're in essence trying to build a little bit of rapport with the person. Yeah, and that, that, that's exactly what you're doing. So in the experiments, they have someone 
write about an important value that they have. So this is a, a classic experiment. You have someone write about uh, one identity that's important to them. Maybe it's being uh, a father. So you write about, oh, one time I built a treehouse for my kid. They really liked it. And it's made me feel good. And then people start to feel better about themselves. And then in the next part of the experiment, you can have people ask them like a political question that might challenge a political identity. And because they're just coming off that boost of, oh, I feel good about myself, they feel better equipped to view it more objectively and not feel as attacked by the political information. And studies have shown that people have been more likely to process political information or misinformation more objectively, more honestly, after they get this little boost first. But then there's been some other research showing just coming out later that the effects of that are limited. (laughs) So I should put that caveat too. Absolutely. And it only makes sense. But how do we how do we utilize that on Twitter, on social media? There's a few main limitations to it. One, we still don't really know how long it lasts. So it could be a very temporary boost. Um, although some research has shown some lasting effects up to a couple of weeks, even from brief affirmations. But basically, I think the takeaway from self-affirmation literature, even more broadly than these experiments, is trying to avoid defensiveness. So on the flip side, experiments have shown that when people are more defensive and more uncertain, they're even more polarized and even more likely to fall for misinformation. So you can constantly think of this like hydraulic system of ego and of self and and that we have. And if you want to have a productive conversation with someone, you should try to have them be in a space where they're most receptive to your ideas. So you know, it, it seems so obvious, but I think sometimes we forget that, um, again, especially online, that, you know, we're talking to another person. And if we upset that person, then everything else we say after that is probably going to be useless because they're just going to shut down. So right. really make an effort to connect with people and see where they're coming from and and really just try to establish mutual respect before you even go into the argument phase. I couldn't agree more. And I think there's been many, many examples since uh, the Bitcoin conference Mm -hmm. I've been hearing about where people who had gotten into arguments, uh, you know, all being Bitcoiners, but they they disagreed on on certain things. Mm -hmm. But then they met in person at the conference in Miami and hugged it out and things were fine. But it's this it's this layer of removal. Uh, that makes things complicated. Right. One of the additionally, one of the things that I've been I've been trying to do is if somebody says something that I don't agree with, or you know, has some type of uh, negative thing to say about uh, about Bitcoin, I, I take a breath and <laughs> and I try to look through you know their their profile or or what they're saying and trying to distill it into what they're trying to get at and start my response. With some type of affirmation, whether that's, you know, I applaud your conviction and your concern for climate change or mm-hmm. whatever other issue, and then jump into my uh, reply. Do you think that's something along the lines what you're you're getting at? Yeah, absolutely. So in the book I'm writing right now, I have a section of like five steps to try to have more productive dialogue. So I can just kind of quickly go through some of those <laughs> if you think it'd be interesting. Absolutely. And you actually already hit, you already hit the first two. Um, so the first one is respect and mutual respect. So 
without respect, as we've been discussing, it's so hard to even have any sort of meaningful conversation with someone. They're just going to shut down. They're not going to pay attention to us. So trying to build rapport with them, trying to connect on other issues, trying to be open and curious is so important if our goal is to have a productive conversation. And, and of course, this goes both ways, right? So if someone's not being respectful to us, then it might not be a good use of our time to try to engage in that dialogue too. So mutual respect is definitely the first one. And then the second part goes into our identities. So I talk about relating to other people. So really these are five R's uh, that I think can help have more productive conversations. So the second R is relating to a common identity. So we've been talking about identities and how important they are, and we can use some of that power that they have to try to have more productive conversations and build connections with people that we might think we have a lot of disagreement with. But in reality, we often find ourselves having a lot in common with other people once we talk to them and treat them like human beings and not just caricatures of an identity we don't like. So if someone is on the other side of the political spectrum as us, or if they're against Bitcoin, or if they're against anything we don't like, we can try to find something that we both do like, whether that's sports, uh, family, um, any kind of hobby, just trying to connect with the person and trying to understand that we have a lot in common with them. And this, again, kind of helps the, the mutual respect part too. So those are like crucial before you even get to the argument stuff. But the next R is reframe. And this is where we start to reframe our position to what they care about. And I think this is something that a lot of people tend to struggle with because they make their arguments in a way that makes sense to them. So whether it's political argument or any kind of argument, they say, this is why I believe X, Y, Z. And the person they're talking to might not care about XYZ at all. <laughs> um, they might care about ABC. So it's important to understand what they care about, what their values are, what's meaningful for them. And then if you can, make that connection. Uh, oftentimes, when something is as broad as Bitcoin, for example, there is going to be connections you can make with lots of different groups of people and trying to listen to where they're coming from, what they care about, and connecting and making that bridge is really important. The next one that I think is important is revise. So this actually dives into how we're having our discussion and the language we use during that discussion and revising the language that we use. A big thing that we can do that's also really simple is just be careful in the types of questions that we ask. So instead of asking someone, why are you against Bitcoin? Even that question is kind of a loaded question it can, and it can allow someone to just dive into all of their justifications that are really rote and connected to their identity, for example. But if we ask someone how they've come to that conclusion, how do they know this to be true? That forces them to take a step back and evaluate the, the mechanism to their beliefs and gives a, a detailed process of connecting logical propositions to each other. So, and there's been some studies looking at this too, that just asking how someone knows something versus why can make a really big difference in how objective they are in their response. So trying to ask how instead of why, trying to avoid uh, binary questions, you know, do you support this, yes or no? And just really broadening the conversation 
So revising our conversation to be as broad and as thoughtful and as curious as possible. And then the last step, uh, maybe the simplest step, but also probably the most important is repeat. So all those four steps I mentioned, we have to keep doing them all the time. <laughs> and there's been studies, again, showing that even if you have um, some effective technique of communicating and combating misinformation, the effects often go away over time. But if you have some uh, regular uh, exposure to combating misinformation, the effects uh, remain. So, and that makes sense too, right? It's like, if we don't maintain these relationships, if we don't maintain these discussions, then they're far more likely to decay and people will return back to their existing uh, position and, their, and beyond their existing position, their pre-existing idea of how to process the argument. So for me, these five steps are not even about changing people's minds. I don't think we should have the goal to try to change someone's mind when we're talking to them because people change their own minds and they come to their own conclusions. I think what we should try to do is try to have productive conversations and productive dialogue. And that's a precursor before any sort of minds are even changed. So these five steps I think are helpful and there's evidence uh, that support each step in having productive dialogue. So I think that if we have a motivation to change someone's mind, even before we get to that step, we should try to have productive dialogue. What do you consider productive dialogue? Productive dialogue to me is being able to have a good faith discussion about a topic where both people are curious, both people are open. And again, it doesn't matter if someone changes their mind or not. What matters is, is they honestly considered your perspective and didn't just dismiss it and go into their routine of uh, rejecting it that, you, that we see so much on social media again, for example. I think your five R's are fantastic and something that in the Bitcoin community, we can learn a lot from, especially reframing mm -hmm. uh, and especially uh, respect. And even, you know, over the course of my time in the Bitcoin community, I certainly have tried to uh, adopt that approach. It, it is far and away more productive uh, in trying to engage somebody than in than the opposite, what do you see a lot of? And I think in part, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're almost a case in point because I don't know how many months ago our paths crossed, you know, and, and you were you were curious in, in between myself and a few of the other um, people in our circle, you asked very thoughtful questions and we it was just this wonderful back and forth conversation about your questions and your concerns. And there was never any force in there. And I always felt like it was respectful. I always felt like we were also trying to approach it with a reframing uh, perspective as, as well. Would, did you feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that's why, uh, you know, that's why I continue to be more open about Bitcoin was your podcast and your work and a few other people that I saw months ago, because for a while I didn't engage about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency at all uh, for a few different reasons. But seeing people that were open to my comments and my, you know, even skepticism, even criticism, um, that was really refreshing because, again, this is part of the algorithm issue of Twitter. When you search Bitcoin on Twitter, I mean, you see some really extreme accounts 
because those are rising to the top, just like you see the really extreme political accounts if you search political stuff. So for me, I was like, oh, do I want to engage with people that have these really extreme views or really extreme uh, rhetoric and how they discuss it? But then once I found some people that were more open and also who shared my progressive values too, that made me more comfortable going out and trying to connect with people because I think it is really important that we see more progressives uh, talk about Bitcoin, of course. I think we <laughs> agree with that. Well, it's interesting. Your last R, the fifth R, uh, with repeating, maybe that's what uh, Brandolini's law mm -hmm. is all about. That That's the energy needed, right? Uh, to continue to uh, refute information, we must put in the work to be able to do so with respect, with reframing, with repeating, and all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it can be really frustrating and really hard. And that's why I always have caveats of like, no one has to do this. If someone's saying something wrong or hurtful, you don't have to engage with them. Like that's totally okay. You should be concerned about your own mental well-being first and foremost. And it's really exhausting to try to fight with people. <laughs> so I get when people don't want to do that. And if they care about a cause, they can do other things to support that cause. They can support like-minded people. They can donate their time, donate their money. There's lots of other things beyond trying to change minds one-on-one, -on -one, which is really really uh, tiring. So yeah, absolutely. As we wind down here, I want to uh, ask you if you have any thoughts on how to reframe Bitcoin for the left. Yeah. So it's something I've been thinking about a lot more since I've been more open about uh, supporting Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. I mean, I think Bitcoin and crypto are still so new that education is still really important. Like there's so much that people just don't understand. And, and I'd say that as someone who's, I feel like I'm still learning so much. Like I've been studying Bitcoin and crypto for about almost two years now, like in, in detail. And I still feel like I just barely scratched the surface. Like it's such a, a new way of thinking about things that it can be really hard, really challenging to really understand. So trying to be patient with people, trying to spread information that's from credible sources is really important. So education, I think here is still really important. But then again, once we kind of get past the facts and think about how do we connect with people, I do think it's really important to, to listen to what people's concerns are. So again, this is the whole reframing part is like, we might think we, we might already understand how Bitcoin works, or we might already understand why something that was said about Bitcoin was misinformation, but someone else might not have. They might've just saw the headline. You know, the big one of course is, uh, climate, right? So there's all this misinformation about Bitcoin being uh, really harmful for the environment and it uses up all this energy. And it's important to, to dissect that and understand that, <laughs> you know, first validate the person's concerns regarding climate. Like, yes, Bitcoin does use a lot of energy. Like, yes, that's true. But here are all these reasons why, one, it's not as bad as you think. And two, there's a lot of utility that makes that energy worthwhile. So trying to connect from where people are coming from is really important. I think trying to connect with uh, the whole idea of like financial inclusion is another value that uh, Bitcoiners can, can express to progressives. That seems to resonate with people. You know, there's been this long history, especially in the United States, of uh, financial exclusion, uh, particularly for racial minorities. And we're seeing racial minorities adopt Bitcoin faster than white people. So I think that's 
you know, a lot of progressives at least say they care about uh, minorities in this country. So trying to use that as an example of like, well, here's this group of people that hasn't been treated very well by our financial system for a long time. And they're trying to use this new tool to regain some of that financial inclusion and some sort of savings in the future in this, this way that's deflationary and, and open and censorship free like Bitcoin is. So connecting those types of values that people find important, I think would be helpful. Um, and then just trying to get people to think about other countries too. Uh, this is something that I found I had some difficulty with because some of my US friends are <laughs> tend to be so US centered that they have trouble really understanding why Bitcoin is helpful for people in other countries because they don't have to worry about our currency being devalued. I mean, now I know inflation is becoming much more of an issue, but the US dollar is still pretty good, right? Like we're, <laughs> we're still in a pretty good financial position compared to someone in another country where their, their currency is inflating at just incredible rates and they won't have money to buy food because their currency is going to be worthless soon. So for them to have some Bitcoin and some kind of savings in this deflationary monetary system could make a big difference. And people who are in very authoritarian countries where they're trying to escape, Bitcoin is that lifeline that allows them to escape and trying to understand that it can be helpful for people to use this process in a way that's open and portable and and give them access to escape a really terrible situation. So again, all I have to say, really try to see what issues they care about are and try to share examples that, that resonate with them because there's, there's a lot of them. I'm assuming you've used your own techniques in talking with your friends and colleagues about Bitcoin. How has that gone? Uh, you know, it's gone, there's been some positives and some negatives. You know, again, like I study this stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always going to be able to reach people, uh, especially online. I mean, online, it, it's it's so easy to shut down. It's so easy to just ignore people. And you're so far removed from seeing them as a person. So I, I definitely had people that refused to engage with me or said something that was wrong. And as respectfully as I could, I tried to correct them. And then they just don't reply. You know, they just don't want to engage. And again, you try to think about what's the incentive system going on here. And this is beyond Bitcoin, just talking about misinformation more broadly. One of the biggest things about our susceptibility to misinformation and bad information is because it's connected to our identity, it makes a lot of sense to hold on to that belief. So if you're comparing the benefit of protecting your identity, protecting your ego versus changing your mind on some arbitrary fact. When you weigh both of those, one is much more important to you, right? So it makes a lot of sense, even though it's really frustrating, but it makes a lot of sense why we see people reject good information and fail to correct misinformation because their incentives are aligned in a way that it makes uh, much more sense to them personally to continue to believe that thing because in that immediate situation, the benefit of correcting their beliefs is simply not that high. So we're so connected to our identities, our social groups, that that's really what's driving a lot of our beliefs and behavior. Not to belabor this specific topic more, but do you think that that has gotten worse 
over the past decade with with Twitter, with Facebook, do you think we are our identity, whether you want to deem it a fragile identity or not, has become more solidified, more polarized as a result, and therefore harder to reach people in situations like this? I think there's some evidence that that's the case. Uh, I mean, we know that by a lot of metrics, people are becoming more polarized. They're just, I mean, if we just focus on the U.S. and Democrats, Republicans, there's absolutely a, a lot more dislike for the other group in the past 10 years uh, than there ever has been. Like, there's this really strong polarization if we just focus on, on that group. But we do see it in other parts of the world, too. And social media in particular does make it a lot easier to validate our identities. So it really just makes that whole identity process so much more efficient, mm -hmm. where let's say you're a Democrat or a Republican, all you have to do is find your, your people who validate your beliefs online, and then you can get in this feedback loop of constantly verifying your identity by attacking other people in the outgroup, which to them in turn strengthens your identity, and then this feedback loop continues. And we know that we even feel better. Like it feels good to verify our identities. This is something that's been shown in literature for decades. So whatever the identity is, it feels good when we verify that. So social media gives us this great outlet to do that. And we know that one of the biggest uh, predictors of sharing fake news is to attack uh, a political opponent. And this is true even if people admit that the fake news is fake they're still more likely to share that news because they think it's gonna attack someone they don't like. So yes, absolutely, I think social media does play a unique role in making these types of productive conversations much more difficult. My last question for you, Matthew, one that'll hopefully end us on a, a positive note here. Uh, not that the discussion was previously negative, but it, uh, the area of misinformation is not necessarily the most joyful aspect of studying. Uh, but what gives you hope? Yeah, I mean, it is hard studying this type of stuff and seeing so much misinformation, polarization out there. What gives me hope, I think, is, is connecting with people and seeing how many good people there are out there. So it's so easy to, again, see the, the most extreme positions rise to the top uh, on our social media feeds. But whenever we go out into our communities and connect with people, there are so many great people out there that really want to make society better and that care about other people and especially the younger generation that has has seen so much negativity and polarization happen in their lifetimes they really want to make a difference and i think that that is a positive aspect of the human condition is that we do care about each other and we do want to make things better it's just sometimes there's all of these other issues and barriers and ideologies and politics that can make that a lot more difficult. But ultimately, I think humans do care about each other and we can connect with people. As, as you mentioned, like when we connect with people one-on-one -on -one and in person, we do see some, some really positive results and some positive experiences. So, you know, people as, as frustrating as they can be sometimes, they still give me hope too. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Well, before we sign off here, please tell us about your forthcoming book. Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on my book. Uh, it's titled Misguided, Where Misinformation Starts, How It Spreads, and What to Do About It. Uh, it's under contract with Columbia University Press. Uh, I have about two chapters left writing it, so I hope to get those two chapters out in the next couple months. And then, then I'll be sending the full manuscript for review 
And then realistically, it'll probably be available like early next year. <laughs> so academic publishing does take a long time. Um, but I think it'll be an interesting book. It's, it covers a lot of stuff that we talked about today in a lot more detail, focusing on identities and social groups and social networks, and really tries to understand how we are susceptible to misinformation and what we can do about it. Um, and yeah, and if people are interested in that, uh, getting an update on when it's available, I have a sub stack that updates my work and I don't use it very often, but whenever I publish something or something uh, that I do that I think people would be interested in, I would post it on there. So whenever it's available for pre-order, uh, I'll post it on that for sure. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. This was uh, extremely helpful for everybody listening with regard to how we engage others on Twitter with regard to Bitcoin, uh, as well as with friends and family. And I hope uh, everybody's learned something from you today and how we can do that better. So thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, don't forget to please leave a review of the podcast. It'll take you two seconds to hit that five-star button. I really appreciate it. Come on, do it now!